You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. How to empower and strengthen women is the role that maternal child health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. In this episode of Take is Directed, I speak with Dr. Trevor Mundell, president of the Global Health Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We discuss the arc of his personal career and his remarkable tenure at the Gates Foundation, the creation of the Medical Research Institute, the launch of CHAMPS with its focus on neonatal mortality, the launch of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, and we close by discussing what keeps him awake at night and what gives him hope. Thank you for being with us, Trevor. My pleasure, Steve. I'd like to start this conversation by talking about you, talking about your own personal history and upbringing, born in rural South Africa in Rustenburg, educated in South Africa, migrating to Oxford and on to the United States, crossing several different disciplines as you went through sort of medicine, mathematics, other things, then entering a world of the biomedical and biotech world. Tell us a little bit about this route that you migrated along that brought you to where you are today. How did that happen? Well, Steve, as you've outlined, somewhat of a a tortuous path over here. But coming from rural South Africa and growing up there in the 60s, 70s, at the height of the apartheid era, I became aware at a very early stage about the impact of inequality and equity in health Mm -hmm. and the consequences that I could see in that society around that. And that only grew when I went to medical school, University of the Vatersrand in Johannesburg, and worked in hospitals that still today are huge medical enterprises, Baragwanath Hospital. And that, I think, seeded in me probably what later on came to be my desire to work on some of those unequal situations and see what could be done to rectify them. I had the tremendous good fortune to be able to study abroad and had a fairly protracted academic career in further medical studies, but also in mathematics, and then ended up in the biotech and pharma industry for a number of years. And I think that stage is obviously a very different from one perspective environment to what I'm doing now in global health, but there were connections. And as I was working on development programs in Basel, Switzerland, we had a group working on malaria and making new malaria drugs. This was the pediatric version? Exactly, exactly. So there was one of the first broadly used artemisinin-based combinations, mm-hmm. coartem. Problem with it is it was a tablet form, bitter to the taste and not very appropriate for young kids. So we made a disposable formulation mm-hmm. that could be given to young kids. And that was put into West Africa. And you know, almost immediately had millions, tens of millions of uses and seemed, in fact, to be quite a life-saving drug at a dimension that surprised me. Because at the same time, we had the circumstance that the pharma industry was working on many rare diseases or starting to get into, you know, what has developed in this focus on rare and tough diseases. So I had one group 
there's about 200 people working on a very rare disease. And at that time, the malaria drug group was five people. So I once again was confronted by a strong inequality. And I'd always had, as I said, I think from my early years, this notion that I would go back and work in Africa. At that time, it was more in the sense of I was thinking it would be something like Medicine San Frontier as, as an organization, which I admire. And uh, then this vacancy at the Gates Foundation became available. And I spoke with Bill and Melinda about their vision. Mm-hmm. And it was tremendously compelling. You know, setting aside this notion that you do something when you retire, I felt that there was really no choice for me but to jump in and see what could be done directly with the tremendous resources that they prepared to put behind this effort. And what is it about the approach that was so compelling? We are in an era of optimism in terms of a very full pipeline of options, right? Technological options. We're in a period that is very hopeful on that side. But we're also in a period where this foundation was evolving and demonstrating what it meant to be a catalytic philanthropy. And I assume those two factors played some role in your own personal thinking about what made this different from a conventional career, where you were on a successful path within the biotech world, but chose to migrate from there to this. Say a bit about that. Well, you know, I think that the one aspect that struck me about both Bill and Melinda was their focus on the outcome and less of a focus on how exactly this would be accomplished. I mean, you say catalytic. I think that they had more the view of, let's try and quantify the problems. Let's pick the biggest ones, the most challenging ones, and let's actually get something done. So it's their focus on reduction to practice. Mm-hmm. One can be optimistic and you know, impatient optimists and hopeful, but I think the, the trick here is how do you reduce that into concrete, practice and actions in the real world. And they seem particularly focused on that. How do we just take this whole exercise out of having convenings, talking about doing things and actually doing things? So you were looking at the inequities, you were looking at the burdens, you're looking at where markets fail, you're looking at where data is poor or missing or thin. These were the framework of considerations. When you talk about outcomes... Those are the kind of considerations that you were bringing to the task of deciding how you make priorities, how you set priorities. That was very strongly their modus operandi. At the time, this is now almost eight years ago, I would say we had a lot of useful directions that we were heading in on that side of actually quantifying the problem, being able to be more specific around size and distribution, but it was still quite nascent. So there had been some significant investments, for instance, in the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, yes, which were relocated not that long before I joined them to Seattle. But having a global burden of disease that essentially comes out once a decade is not something that's going to let you have a fast, flexible approach to adapting to ongoing situations like malaria going up and down and Mm -hmm. changing its distribution. So we sat down and I think one of the initial most significant investments we made was to really up our game in terms of this global burden of disease and trying to quantitate what that was, map it with all the geospatial tools that were becoming available. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we did, which led ultimately to the presentations that we have at the goalkeepers events at the UN General Assembly, which was try to project into the future Mm -hmm. where one would estimate along current trends, one would end up with malaria deaths, HIV incidents, 
TB incidence. And because that result is uncertain, think about in the context of negative outcomes, what would be a worst case in 10 to 20 years hence. And then in terms of positive factors, what would be a best case and use that as a way of really demonstrating to people that there would be significant actions that we could take today, which could influence the future in between best case and worst case. Mm -hmm. And let's take those best case options now. Let's talk for a moment about the Medical Research Institute. That's reasonably new, right? But two years ago, maybe even a little less than two years ago. Set up functioning, essentially open stores January 1, 2018. So it's about 18 months. And its priorities are malaria, TB, diarrheal diseases, enteric diseases. You have a very dynamic person, Penny Heaton, heading that up. When you talk about it, you talk about it as being different from industry or academic partners, having a different risk calculation. You talk about failing fast, jump-starting, being fearless, and trying to cover gaps in primary data so you can inform your decisions. Explain a little bit more. How is this creature fundamentally different in the way it's meant to behave as against what you think of as private sector corporate partners or academic research that are looking to develop new tools, whether they're vaccines or therapies or diagnostics, that will help reduce the burden of diseases that are a terrible burden on the poor. Right. Why is it that you felt the need to create this institute? Well, Steve, some of the elements of the institute which you've articulated of here are not necessarily new. This notion of needing to be risk-taking and fearless in the face of what people have termed the valley of death Mm-hmm. as you come from innovation to actually translating that into interventions or products and yeah. the fact that the vast majority in industry and elsewhere fail, fail to even get traction and make it through into that stage for a variety of complexities. So you have to have a different mixture if you hope to succeed. And not that there are not a number of partners that we have worked with and we continue to work with that have made extraordinary strides in this area. It's not for nothing that we have a new oral drug for African trypanosomiasis Mm -hmm. uh, view that effort. And we're hopeful about new drugs for malaria. We have a new pneumococcal vaccine, which Mm -hmm. should have a price point which is extremely encouraging for us in terms of the size of that problem. So there's been a lot of work done on the product side in global health The problem has been more with some of the challenges that we think are going to require a level of innovation beyond what we've seen, not a cheaper version of a vaccine or an iteration of a malaria drug, something like the first vaccine that would be effective for tuberculosis Mm -hmm. beyond the modest efficacy of BCG or in malaria, a highly effective vaccine that might block transmission as well as prevent the infection in the individual. So those kinds of innovations, which would be challenges anywhere. What I've seen, and I think many people would accept, that most of the first forays into a new innovation, a new innovation area like that, tend to fail. Mm -hmm. And it requires an iteration. One needs to go back with an improved version Mm -hmm. of whatever caused the first failure. So if that loop of innovation is many, many years, and it needs to cycle a few times, you can project how long it would take for any of these things to come to fruition. So you need to short circuit that cycle. And the only way you can do that is to have a very close 
planning data analytic relationship with the entity that is doing the work on the ground, the people who are technical experts in that particular disease field, whether it be TB, malaria, diarrheal disease. And very difficult to set up that tight iterative relationship outside of a single entity. Even within a single entity, these things can become divorced. So the enterprise is, can we have that rapid loop of innovation? And at the same time, beyond what has happened within the global health space, can we assemble all of the high-level professional capabilities outside of, let's just say, clinical development around manufacturing, toxicology, pharmacokinetics, regulatory science, that very difficult in the public space to aggregate. Companies have done that. Private companies have done that. And it's hugely costly, horizontal type of structure that you need to put together. But could we put together enough of those capabilities that we would be able to bring the capabilities of the private sector, but now we are working in Africa and Asia, South Asia in particular. So those are some of the elements of the novelty of the program. Thank you. Let's talk about CHAMP. As I understand it, neonatal mortality has been a phenomenon that's been stubborn. It's also an area where data has been poor. So understanding What are the factors at play that account for this high mortality and what do you do about it is sort of at the center of the CHAMP's effort. I hope I've gotten that correct. So what have you learned from this thus far in trying to dive in, improve the basic data, and through that understand what the root factors driving this are and what the remedies might look like? Well, Steve, one thing I'd say is that this CHAMP's initiative is – part of a fulfillment of a commitment that we made Mm -hmm. when we really invested heavily in the analytics, the global burden of disease and expanded that and correctly pointed out to us that you can only get so far on better analytics in the face of poor primary data. And I think you need both. So we understood the huge gap in primary data in the areas that we're interested in, particularly, as you've said, this neonatal maternal connection where we see this intractable problem of the death rate not declining as we'd like. What has surprised me about CHAMPS, actually on a tremendously positive side, one of the things that is integral to it is it wants to take a gold standard, which is the sad circumstance that in order to really understand why a young child has died and what happens if a child dies for unexplained reasons in the US or in Europe, is a true medical autopsy would be performed and intensive microbiological examination. Was it an infection? Was it an unsuspected meningitis? Was there some other reason if it was sudden and Mm -hmm. not explained? Would be done and with a reasonably high likelihood, the cause would be ascertained. That is almost never done in the regions that we are working in and very difficult to do. So we worked with some groups who developed what they called a minimally invasive version of the standard autopsy. Mm -hmm. And we tested this out. Actually, the first trial of this was in Mozambique. And it was actually quite successful in terms of showing that you could ascertain why these young children were dying, Mm -hmm. almost as accurately as with the full autopsy. And then we had a lot of feedback, you know, from some people saying, well, that's one thing, but, you know, many communities will not buy into this, performing this kind of procedure. And What would be the interest in this in a child's death? And I would say that in 
many circumstances that we've seen now, the majority that I'm aware of, the converse has been true, that mothers and parents are very interested and deeply desire to know what happened yes. to their kids. They just have to trust you. It's an incredible act of community engagement, explanation of what is being done, how it's being done in the most respectful way possible. And most importantly, it is returning the information to the parents in a way that they find satisfying and they understand what happened. And there has been quite strong community support for this. So that really encourages me as we move to define this gold standard, we will come to understand really why kids are dying. And what more have we learned recently about what's causing their death? Well, it's almost a mythology. In the malaria endemic areas, a young kid dies, it's malaria. You in South Asia, a young kid dies, it could be typhoid. There are many other causes, and you know we have the potential to fix those. These are big programs that we could institute. Take some infection like Group B strep, which is suspected of being involved in some of the neonatal deaths mm. and maybe even stillbirths. But the question is, how important is it amongst all the potential causes? Is it important enough that we should invest now in a new vaccine, which is many years and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment? And this is the kind of information that is starting to come out now. It looks like GBS is a significant cause of this. Respiratory syncytial virus, for which a vaccine doesn't exist, antibodies are being deployed for this, but they're pretty expensive. Should we double down and invest in a vaccine program for RSV? Indeed, there's increasing validation that that is a very substantial factor, even though it may not directly be the cause of death. It may be in the chain of events that leads a young child to be hospitalized, pick up nosocomial infections, and subsequently die. So it's giving us hugely valuable information, much more specific, disaggregating infectious cause, fever, child died. Thank you. A couple of other topics, and then we can close. On CEPI, we've done a lot of work on CEPI, and Gates Foundation was there as one of the founding partners. Tell us a little bit about First, what you see is its core value, but also as it matures and it succeeds, what is it telling us about connecting those products to phase three development with other corporate partners? What is it telling us about preparing partner countries to be ready to deploy, including on an emergency crash basis, some of these vaccines? Well, Steve, sad to say that we're in the midst of another Ebola tragedy, slow moving, slower than the last one. Yes. But it was really the last Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which triggered, I think, a lot of rethinking about what exactly are we doing once again around concrete actions to prevent a circumstance from occurring again, or maybe even a larger global issue from occurring. And as much as there'd been a lot of discussion, I think that a number of parties, both at the governmental level and folks involved in global health, felt there had been not enough specific action. And the action that can be taken is in terms of a vaccine. Now, that Ebola outbreak, which led to the production of the two critical vaccines being deployed now, including the one in the ring vaccination in Democratic Republic of Congo, actually gave us tremendous hope. Now, it has to be said, both of them had a certain state of readiness. They'd been slowly moving along over many years, but they could be accelerated from that early stage dramatically that, you know, within 18 to 24 months, they were ready to be deployed, essentially. 
And that's an acceleration in vaccine development, which is unheard of. A process normally takes, you know, eight to 10 years minimally. So that gave us encouragement that that could be done. But it did show that you have to have the prerequisites set up. Otherwise, this is not going to happen. So for other infections that might come along, whether they be Lassa fever now or Nipper viral infections or the unknown pathogen, if you don't have the manufacturing, this is always the Achilles heel of vaccines and vaccine development is you'd have the theoretical construct, the research done, but you can't actually make it to try test it in people. And then maybe you make enough of it to test in a phase one study, but you can't make enough of it to treat people. So that manufacturing side of things is the absolute roadblock. And unless you unblock that, you're not going to ever be able to move forward. So CEPI was really built around that premise. We need a portfolio of, first of all, the most likely vaccine targets for pandemics. And then we need to think about how we get a set of constructs ready that can be deployed rapidly. And secondly, the unknown pathogen, as everybody has pointed out, is the most likely thing to come along, other than maybe a pandemic influenza situation. And for that, you need a set of platforms that can be readily deployed, like the RNA or the nucleic acid platforms that could be rapidly reformatted, even though it would be slower than something you already had set to go. So I think that set of ideas came really to fruition out of that Ebola situation. Thank you. On the current outbreak in DRC, the foundation is doing a few things that are helping speed things up a bit around genetic sequencing, around promoting fractionation of the vaccines, about rapid diagnostics. If this continues, if this continues to escalate and live on, how would you imagine the foundation's role evolving in this next period? Played a very important role in 2014-15 in quick response across, I think it was five different areas. In this case, there are three or four areas that you've already identified as places where you can be helpful in trying to speed things along. Well, you know, I think, Steve, it was a learning lesson, the West African outbreak, to the extent mm -hmm. that initially we had to debate exactly what would our role be. Yes. We were heavily involved in those countries in measles programs and yes. malaria programs. Yeah. And initially we felt that, and it seemed to be the case, there was adequate funding. And theoretically, there were a lot of groups that were activated, particularly when it became an event of, you know, international public concern and was declared as such, ultimately. It wasn't a question that theoretically there was a lot of funds that could be accessed. It became clear to us that some of that funding was less fungible than our funding. And, you know, the rapid availability of early funding is a role. As over here, you know, we've deployed a limited set of funding, but hopefully flexibly to enable the folks working on the ground, World Health Organization, to act as they need to. We've seen the disruption to everything else. Measles, there've been measles outbreaks in this area of the Congo. Mm -hmm. Malaria is highly endemic in that region as well. And as occurred in West Africa, it is very likely that as many, if not more people will be dying from those infections. So I would say that because we have a lot of activity in those areas, a key role for us to try and ensure that we don't have a repetition of more people die from these ancillary infections, which we can deal with, mm -hmm. 
there's a difficult community circumstance in Congo right now, which we have to overcome. Ultimately, will be the key to resolving the issue. And as that moves along, as you say, it is slow. We need to be aware of all the ancillary factors and problems that are going to be there. Thank you. The global health enterprise, obviously, it's a very complicated, multidimensional field that's had huge gains in the last two decades. But there's also been plateaus, there's been dips, there's been regression, there's been risk of regression. Things have stalled in certain areas, malaria. We have a demographic trends that are happening, particularly in Africa, that leave people puzzled over how to sustain these gains and not see regression. What's your thinking about what the strategy should be for these sorts of things that are big trends, big and heavy trends that are undeniable, that I think lead to a certain amount of pause on what's the world really going to look like, despite all of these amazing achievements and amazing gains. Yeah, Steve, some troubling questions over there. You know, there are two that do keep me awake at night. One is an immediate threat, which is the stalling of the gains made in malaria, particularly in Central Africa, two countries prominent, Nigeria and DRC, now under Ebola threat. And the fact that over the last two or three years, we've seen case burdens not decrease, plateau. You can look at the reasons for that, but we've had to you know, do a lot of soul searching and think about our strategy, which up until fairly recently had been focused on the ultimate elimination of malaria, which in some ways sets you up for quite distant goals. We've been talking about a 2040, and it also gets you to work potentially in different places in terms of there are a number of countries that are in the end game and are getting close to elimination. So we were very focused on how do we get this elimination strategy and how would we converge ultimately to, you can say, the heart of the epidemic. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, things were on a fairly good track with the Global Fund doing a fantastic job in distributing control tools like bed nets, indoor residual spraying. With the stalling, though, you know, I think we've had a little bit of a pause on that and have felt that we need to think as much as the final elimination goal remains a focus for us, we need to get there through a path that doesn't lead to or doesn't ignore the fact that there is the stall and you know, a lot of people are dying in the interim. So whatever we can do in mapping that pathway that minimizes the intercurrent problems, we need to do that. One of the things that has led to very acutely is once again this issue of the acute mapping that we need uh, around an issue like pyrethroid resistance. So most of the nets we have, 100 million odd nets that Global Fund has, are pyrethroid-based nets. But pyrethroid resistance in a somewhat heterogeneous fashion is rife in Africa. We have now 10 million of the non-pyrethroid or the dual nets, which could be deployed. Where would we put the 10 million? Today, it probably is quite difficult to say, other than we just randomly put them in on the basis of, well, this country has shown some pyrethroid resistance, we just put the nets everywhere. Peter Sands, who we work with closely at the Global Fund, has said that, give me targeted information on a country basis, sub-national, of where exactly the problem is, pyrethroid resistance. I can target the dual nets to that problem. We can double the impact of the investments of the Global Mm -hmm. Fund with that targeted information. 
So we have a big program around a much improved molecular surveillance now of malaria. We'll be sampling initially about 10,000 mosquitoes drawn from various traps around Africa and getting a much precise mapping of the gene flow of pyrethroid resistance. Mm -hmm. And on a time scale that we'll be able to turn that information into within-year action by a group like Global Fund in their distributions. So I think that's... I wouldn't say that problem is addressed, but at least there are some new approaches which I have hope will have an impact. HIV is the other problem, and you alluded to the demographic changes there. There's been a substantial amount of modeling around how the epidemic will evolve in southern and East Africa in particular, which is the heartland of where it is now. And Tremendous successes in putting large cohorts of people onto antiretrovirals, which we know is life-saving and is transforming the lives of tens of millions of people currently. But with the massive explosion of the high-risk teenage population and young adult population in that region, many projections would indicate that you may numerically have more people who are HIV positive in 2035 than in the current time, despite the success and despite the decline in incidence in some regions. And how does one think about that? It causes you to, first of all, in terms of the precarious nature of some of the funding we have in the global health space, if there were, for whatever reason, some decrease in funding for antiretroviral treatment would be a disaster. A 10% decrease would be a nightmare in Southern and East Africa. So we need to think about other alternatives. They're not going to be available necessarily very acutely, but we've initiated a program now partnering with the NIH around HIV cure, Mm -hmm. HIV frontiers, we call it. And this backs off the exciting developments around gene therapy, for instance, where we see sickle cell disease as leading the pathway potentially Mm -hmm. in Africa in some version of gene therapy that might be more scalable. And does that gene therapy then lead to options that one can actually see? I mean, you can be hopeful about new interventions might come on and drugs and vaccines for HIV, but you can see a pathway to a functional or absolute cure so many years hence, but we should be investing in that now because it will take a while. And we need to have some alternatives that we could think about in some of these worst case scenarios. Thank you. Just in closing, what gives you the greatest hope? You seem fundamentally a very optimistic person. I don't think you would be in this field if you were not. But what is it that gives you the greatest hope? You know, ultimately, uh, this whole enterprise is not based on some of the products and the wonderful researchers we have and many research labs. It's based on the commitments we see whenever you visit the people who are implementing programs as the dedicated staff at MSF, World Health Organization, and others working in DRC right now. And I've just been astounded over these years of the unwavering dedication of frontline workers in Africa, working in the most difficult circumstances. And it could be in Baraguanath Hospital in Soweto in South Africa. It could be in Niger. There is a core group of people, renewable, because I see in young people a tremendous interest whenever I go to university campuses, tremendous interest in global health and people willing to put themselves in some jeopardy and make career decisions which are quite selfless. 
So this element, which I'd never been as aware of, makes me feel we have the human capital and the human substrate for this enterprise to succeed. Well, thank you so much, Trevor. This has been quite inspiring and very rich and very grateful that you would spend the time today with us sharing your thoughts. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take As Directed, featuring Dr. Trevor Mundell, president of the Global Health Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work, please visit our Global Health Policy Center program page at csis.org. 